If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The downfall for these characters was absolutely precipitous and you really get the feeling as you're charting their lives as though they're mere miniatures being swept along in this great current of change in the early 20th century, which Queen Victoria could never have anticipated as she was trying to manoeuvre them into their matches. That was Deborah Cadbury speaking about her new book on Queen Victoria's matchmaking. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Deborah Cadbury an author and TV producer who has made several series for the BBC. Her latest book, entitled Queen Victoria's Matchmaking, has just been published, and it explores how the British Queen sought to arrange influential matches for her many descendants, 
and how this impacted on European history. She spoke to our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So Deborah, your new book, Queen Victoria's Matchmaking, uh, covers Queen Victoria's uh, family um, and her matchmaking and manoeuvring of this family into thrones throughout Europe. Could you start by introducing us um, to Victoria and Albert um, and their, their children and grandchildren, the cast of characters that you're covering in this book? When I first looked at it, it was a daunting set of characters. And of course, being Victoria, many of her descendants were called Victoria and Albert. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, how is anyone going to follow this story? And as I started to narrow it down and work out my focus... I really began to see that the, the family is a strength. It's the most extraordinary family saga. And I was really trying to understand how seven of her grandchildren ended up on Europe's thrones at such a critical time. And I narrowed down my cast to the characters who were most instrumental, the grandchildren who were most instrumental, either because they ended up on one of these thrones or because they were key to other characters ending up on these thrones. Um, could you perhaps talk a little about Queen Victoria's relationship with her husband, Albert? Well, Queen Victoria was much more in love with Albert than he was with her. Um, she had the power as queen, of course, and he felt himself to be something of a cipher. Um, she came to admire, you know, even idolise him and see him as a great man. But this really wasn't his view of her. He longed to establish his position and his worth. Um, and I suppose, you know, he saw a greater role for the dynasty um, in which the marital alliances of their children and grandchildren could actually play a role. So the matchmaking, you know, came to fulfill a purpose. Um, he believed that it might be possible to bring greater peace and stability to Europe as well as extend royal power, British power, um, through the marital alliances of their children and grandchildren. And what I was really looking at was how how... You know, it came to be that the royal family, you know, as Britain was at the peak of its supremacy, um, the royal family too was at the peak of its supremacy in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, how seven of Queen Victoria's grandchildren came to be occupying thrones of Europe at this most pivotal time. Um, and, you know, just how this had all come about through Victoria and especially Albert's vision. The start of all of this was in 1855, when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert invited the handsome second heir to the Prussian throne, Prince Frederick, to Balmoral. And at the time, Vicky was just 14. And, you, you know, just looking at the archives, you get a real sense of the pressures, because the Queen knew she wanted her daughter to fall in love with Fritz, as she called him. And she thought he was looking very manly. And it was making her heart quite beat, she wrote in her diary, as she knew the next few days would determine the fate of her oldest child. And sure enough, Vicky, who was very bright, absolutely understood what was expected of her. You know, her romantic feelings obligingly developed over what amounted to just a two-week courtship um, to mirror Albert's political and strategic vision of Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, Prince Albert really grasped the potential of Prussia, Protestant Prussia, to unite all the German states under its banner. 
and the power that this country would wield in Europe. He didn't want a newly unified Germany under Prussian domination to exert its influence as a military dictatorship or autocracy. He wanted Vicky's brilliant marriage to do nothing less than fashion the political development of Prussia-Germany on British lines and then facilitate an Anglo-German alliance. So the young princess is just literally dispatched to Prussia to try to help the new state towards a parliamentary constitutional monarchy. Um, And she was in no doubt, you know, he told her the marriage wasn't just about her happiness, it was about the welfare of Europe. Uh, And everyone, you know, great scenes as people cheered her off on a cold January day. Everyone was shouting, you know, for this daughter of England as she left for Prussia. God save the prince and bride, God keep their lands allied. You know, there was tremendous hope invested in these royal marriages. And when Prince Albert died, uh, Queen Victoria and Vicky, now in Germany, felt his word to be, you know, their law. And they were very keen to continue with his vision of dynastic marriages. So quite soon afterwards, um, Queen Victoria's oldest son, Bertie, married a Danish princess, bringing connections to Russia, Greece and Denmark. And five other children in turn married German heirs. And the tragedy of what actually happened to Vicky forms um, a sort of Uh, a a constant backdrop to the matchmaking of the grandchildren that I explore because, you know, a horrible human element, you know, entered Albert's great vision. Nothing, nothing worked out the way he planned. And Vicky found herself stranded as there was one problem after another. And what's extraordinary about this is that Vicky wrote, you know, two or three times a week to her mother. And this correspondence between Queen Victoria and her daughter Vicky in Germany is a quite fantastic window on their world because you really do see the pressures and the strains of, um, you know, the great power relationships, the jostling that was going on in Europe at the time, the hopes for these matches, the fears that Vicky had as she saw her son Wilhelm's development, um, you know, her concerns from a very young age about his aggression, um, about uh, his anti-English feelings uh, and the way he aligned himself with Prussian militarism. So, you know, all the seeds to the later problems are sown quite early on and you get a horrible sense of uh, the foreshadowing of what's to come. It is hard to imagine a time when, you know, all of these countries, you know, the the uh, heir to the Russian throne is calling our queen granny. And when it's, uh, you know, the queen's grandson on the German throne, and they're all meeting regularly um, at cows, um, at, at christenings, at jubilees. Uh, and of course, People thought that it would bring security and peace and safety and didn't envisage the way it would unravel. Uh, so how much did she um, see herself as this, uh, as Europe's great matriarch whose mission was to bring peace and, and spread these values? It undoubtedly brought her um, an incredible amount of um, a sort of unique power because she stood as Europe's great matriarch, you know, she wasn't just at the helm of the British Empire. She was also the head of the family for, you know, all these children who were growing up, um, uh, who were uh, occupying very powerful positions in Europe and grandchildren growing up in the palaces of Europe. 
she just came to be recognized, you know, across Europe. She was just known as the queen. That meant Queen Victoria. She had the most extraordinary position. So the woman who'd started out as this very unconfident girl, you know, arriving on the throne in the 1830s, you know, by the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, her power is quite formidable. Um, One granddaughter described it as almost fetish-like. The places she inhabited had the air of shrines about them. You know, approaching her rooms at Balmoral, for example, you seem to be going down endless corridors, hushed corridors, which would be silently opened for you. And, you know, as you approach the final door, one grandchild described this feeling of absolute awe as to, you know, what would be the other side? You know, what would this queen be like who held such power? Um, Only to find, you know, quite a shy, timid, um, you know, very short, four foot 11 queen um, in a very domestic setting. So there were sort of marvellous contradictions there. And in turn, you know, the royal family continued to grow very large number of grandchildren, if you can imagine, 42 in all, all growing up in Europe's palaces in the late 19th century, in the 1870s and 80s, beginning to reach maturity. Um, You know, they really occupied a sort of unique network or club, occupying a singular place at the top of European society. And Queen Queen Victoria saw how her union with her beloved Albert had even greater significance as all these royal connections could be extended and secured still further. So she sort of had a trusty almanac to go to at her side, a, a who's who of European royalty, and took a very informed interest in the marriages of her grandchildren. And you describe this um, kind of top level of society uh, rather wonderfully in your book as the world's most exclusive dating agency. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to be honest, that is what it felt like because there you are with these with these um, grandchildren occupying a very pivotal position in these grand palaces. Um, you know, one good-looking princess might find herself sought after by um, the heirs to several thrones. Several princesses ended up on several princes' shortlist. You know, it was an extraordinarily elite little club with Queen Victoria herself uh, sort of adjudicating or trying to adjudicate the outcomes. Um, So, you know, it was very, very interesting to see how all of this was managed and tremendous fun. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Um, so if I could talk a little bit about your research, Deborah, when, when you were researching the book, you had access to the archives at Windsor Castle um, between Queen Victoria and her grandchildren. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, what their correspondence was like? Was there fondness? Was it all business? No, it, it was very fond. It was, it was, you know, it could almost have been a grandmother too. Early on, they're writing from the palaces of Europe, and we're talking about 42 grandchildren, of whom 34 survived to adulthood. And they're all good correspondents. You can just see governesses sitting them down with little pencil-drawn lines to write to their granny on the British throne. And it starts out being cute little stories about their pets or their foreign travels. But as they grow into maturity, you know, it's their innermost um, hopes and fears and what they want. Or indeed, if they're manipulating Queen Victoria, you can see sometimes exactly how that's going on, what they're prepared to reveal to Queen Victoria about what they're really hoping or what they're concealing from her and not mentioning. So the letters, which are all beautifully preserved in Windsor Castle, give a fantastic window on this world. And, uh, you know, to some extent, they occupy what seems like an almost fairy tale type world. You, you come across these fantastic descriptions, golden coaches drawn by plumed white coaches, royal trains filled with flowers to convey a bride across, across Russia, orchestras summoned across Europe to play to a newly betrothed. Or in the case of one reluctant bride, her Russian suitor arrived with enough Fabergé jewellery to fill a shop window, which he proceeded to pin on her dress. You know, there are these quite extraordinary scenes um, which give you a sense of the world they inhabited in the 1880s and 1890s at the height of the Belle Epoque. You know, it's well above the pecking order of, you know, we think about the aristocracy of Downton Abbey. That's what we've seen on television. But, you know, they were well above that, well elevated above that. It was an extraordinary world, an extraordinary microcosm that they inhabited. With extraordinary pressures too. With extraordinary pressures, yes, yes. I mean, compared to the women of today, the women really had little choice and the marriages could be a bit of a lottery. Another very striking example is the fate of Mary of Edinburgh. Um, Her mother was absolutely determined, her Russian mother was absolutely determined that um, she shouldn't end up uh, in the sphere of Queen Victoria and did everything in her power to manoeuvre her daughter at the tender age of 16 into a marriage with the Romanian heir and actually got the Kaiser's 
collaboration, Wilhelm's collaboration to bring it about. And, you know, it's very clear, it's sort of heartbreaking, actually, reading the records, um, that uh, Mary had absolutely no idea of the physical side of marriage. It simply wasn't explained to her. And so she sets off to Romania quite unprepared for her husband's strong passion and ended up really repulsed by his advances and pregnant within days. Uh, And it was left to her lady-in-waiting who accompanied her on the journey to Bucharest to enlighten the shocked princess as to just exactly what was going on and why she felt such malaise and sickness. And in her memoirs, Later, uh, Mary made no criticism of her mother's actions, apart from one very telling remark. Mama, more than any other being I have known, would cut off her nose to spite her face because actually Mary did have the opportunity to marry the British heir um, and her mother was not going to let that happen. So all sorts of machinations going on behind the scenes. Did you pick up on any um, particular favourites or um, people she was particularly charmed by? Yes, she definitely um, really cared about Alex of Hesse, the um, grandchild that went on to marry uh, the Tsarevich Nicholas. What happened was that the Hesse children lost their mother. So she felt that she was to be a mother to the Hess grandchildren. And she really, they had a very close relationship with the Queen. Um, there were always holidays in Balmoral and Windsor and Osborne. And she came to know them very well and took a very keen interest in their marriages. And, you know, I have to say, you know, the power she held was quite extraordinary. She thought nothing of trying to persuade grandchildren to break off an engagement or to insist upon a divorce in one case um, uh, if she didn't approve of a marriage. Uh, You know, it was really quite extraordinary, the power that she wielded over their lives. But they gave as good as as they got and could hold their own. So, you know, there's a fantastic clash of wills. How did um, these people deal with that pressure of being overlooked by this um, th- this matriarchal figure of their grandmother? Well, she ha- she certainly liked to feel that she was in control, but she, you know, in many ways, she she met her match. These grandchildren, some of them had wills that were just as strong as her. She took um, obviously incredible interest in the British heir, uh, who in the uh, you know in eighteen in the late eighteen eighties was Prince Albert Victor. Eddie, um, standing in line to the British throne at the height of British supremacy and was meant to be Europe's premier prince. But the truth was rather different and extraordinary lengths were were gone to keep things from Grandmama Queen, as she was known. Um, You know, he was certainly no Einstein. He struggled to remember his directions when he first, you know, started to take on public engagements. Loud instructions could be heard whispered to him when to move and stand and sit. Uh, but docile Eddie was knocked over like a ninepin by a French princess um, who was determined to marry the heir to the British throne and proved to be quite a handful for the Queen Victoria. Um, Helen was more than a match for anyone and rapidly got the better of the Queen, who was persuaded that Eddie was very much in love. So there are all these marvellous stories between these different characters. Um, Others that I really liked were the Hess sisters, Um, Alex of Hesse, who of course went on to become the ill-fated Tsarina, 
um, she actually was courted by both the heirs to the British and the Russian thrones. Um, and she was a great beauty. Uh, she had an air of distant coolness, which sort of added to her desirability uh, and had the strength of character to turn down the British throne in defiance of Grandmama Queen. And yet letters revealed she suffered from crippling anxieties at a very young age. And, you know, just looking at some of the letters that came through from the Royal Archives, you really see the pressures that she felt she was under to make a good match and the worries that there were about she was actually very drawn to the Tsarevich, Nicholas, but the intense anxiety about getting mixed up with Russia. The Queen was always issuing warnings about how she didn't want her grandchildren to marry into the Russian throne. As she was starting to consider, uh, you know, matches for her grandchildren, uh, it was just at the time when there was a rise of anarchy, particularly in Russia, where there was extraordinary inequality between rich and poor. Um, the Romanovs were uh, ruling with absolute power and uh, people wanted to bring an end to this with, um, they were a group of anarchists called People's Will and they plotted uh, to um, murder the Tsar, um, most brutally with dynamite, which was a novelty at the time. And they literally hunted the Tsar. Uh, you know, there were about six assassination attempts before they finally succeeded. And of course, the details of this assassination were relayed by telegram straight through to Windsor Castle. The whole royal family across Europe was electrified and knew what was going on. So there were all these fears swirling around Russia Russia, um, not just from Russia's position in the world and conflict with the British Empire, but the very nature of its autocracy, the security of its throne. And this really led Queen Victoria into a sort of 10-year battle of wills with one of her grandchildren, Alex of Hesse's older sister, Ella, who was quite determined to see her sister marry the Tsarevich, Nicholas, um, and you know, convinced they were in love. Um, and as you see all of this unfolding, you see the pressures on Alex, for example, uh, to, uh, she really was nervous about marrying into the Russian royal family and heeded her grandmother's warnings um, and actually went to the point of turning the Tsarevich down. So there were, you know, all sorts of details emerge behind the scenes when you start to look at these characters, which haven't come to light before, which allow you to see how they actually ended up in their final positions, uh, just as we've finally reached the Great War. And what's remarkable as well is that you can see how these grandchildren in their individual uh, fates end up shaping um, the future of Europe. For example, Alex and and her relationship with the Tsar, with the relationship with Rasputin. Yes, uh, I mean the Queen's fears were almost, uh, you know, like a premonition that Alex would be unsafe in Russia. She never anticipated the harm that Alex could do Russia. And actually, when you look at the detail of the records in the First World War and see the pressures that Alex was putting on then the Tsars, our Nicholas, um, to maintain autocracy at all costs and how she carried on, you know, it was almost like a delusion about Rasputin, her relationship with this imaginary saint who she was convinced was going to um, uh, save her son for Russia and also help them win the war. Um, you know, it's quite heartbreaking to see what was going on to the point where even her own sister Ella 
um, is uh, comes along to issue warnings and advise her sister to step back from what she's doing, um, only to find herself driven away like a dog, as she puts it. So although they start out with these fairy tale enchanted lives, by the end, you see the extraordinary pressures they are under, um, occupying these pivotal thrones of Europe. Um, we're talking about Germany, Britain, Russia, Romania, Greece, Spain, um, you know, just at the time, Romania, just at the time when the First World War broke out. Um, you know, it was the downfall for these characters was absolutely precipitous. And you really get the feeling as you're charting their lives as though they're mere miniatures being swept along in this great current of change in the early 20th century, um, you know, great tides of change, which Queen Victoria could never have anticipated as she was trying to manoeuvre them into their matches. And across this um, very diverse cast of grandchildren, you find some are more willing than others to to play, <laughs> play the play the game, if you like. Um, for instance, there's Prince George, the Duke of York, who um, certainly was in no hurry to marry. Yes, he was in absolutely no hurry to marry. He, um, you know, there was no princess currently available whose interests quite matched those of Prince George, because stamp collecting and shooting on the grouse moor really were his favourite hobbies. And he just saw no reason to hurry to marry. Um, and what was rather lovely was to find in the archives, you know, because he, he really was very straight, very upright, very trying to do his best, very trying to be obliging. And yet the press got completely the wrong end of the stick. And there are extraordinary stories in the press about um, Prince George's marriage, because the press were quite certain that it became really widely rumoured to the point where the Archbishop of Canterbury, no less, had to issue a statement to say it was false. Um, everyone believed that Prince George already had a secret marriage and that was why he was in no hurry to marry. So there were all sorts of things going on behind the scenes which they had to deal with. But uh, none of the princes quite turned out to be a Mr. Darcy, uh, you know, even if they looked the part, um, you know, there was there was a, a real mixture of princes here from the um, from the British ones who were Prince Eddie and Prince George who were really more fond of their mother and very uh, in no rush to marry um, Eddie who was very languid and um, you know had something of a vacant expression not the brightest um, and yet quite certain he'd fallen in love with Princess Alex and was trying to do everything possible to make this come about and really felt devastated when uh, things didn't work out in the way that he hoped. And then when the French princess, uh, you know, she came along and uh, made it quite clear that she was in love with Eddie and Eddie was, was so certain that he returned her love that he was quite prepared to abdicate the throne. So really, you know, there was one calamity after another for the Queen which she was trying to juggle and nothing worked out as planned. And you pinpoint in your book um, quite a few of these what-if moments where if something had gone to plan or hadn't gone to plan, how different history could have been. I think one of the what-ifs that's been debated for a century is what if Vicky's husband, the Emperor Frederick, hadn't died at a young age? You know, what might have been Europe's fate? Would there have been a, a rapprochement between a more 
liberal Germany uh, and Britain to which Vicky's marriage, uh, you know, her entire life was dedicated, would there be some kind of Anglo-German understanding? Um, uh, you know, detractors of this viewpoint have suggested that um, Frederick might not have been the liberalizing force that was anticipated um, because when he finally ascended the throne after 26 years of Bismarck's domination, the liberals had long since lost their majority in the Reichstag and the tide had turned against the Albertine program. But I have to say, you know, it's hard to imagine under Prince Frederick um, an early 20th century, you know, it's hard to imagine that there would have been a naval arms race between Britain and Germany. Um, it's hard to imagine the goading and inflammatory hostility in the German and British press, or even the clashes over colonies. Um, but Victoria and Albert's idealistic vision just didn't encompass the possibility that their own grandson at the helm of the vigorous new country of Germany, who was meant to embody the very best of both countries, Britain and Germany, um, no one imagined that he would have his thoughts constantly directed towards dreams of German power and help to sow the seeds of destruction. And it was very interesting to chart in Vicky and Queen Victoria's correspondence, you know, just how their fears about Wilhelm were taking shape. Um, because Vicky really saw it, you know, from even 20, 30 years out. She thought with fright and horror of the future, and she was really in fear for what might happen. And at one stage, she gave warnings to the Queen that, you know, arguably a tantamount to treason, um, where she was giving away things that the Germans were planning um, before they were known, before they were announced. Um, uh, she was so concerned about what was going on. So it it provides an incredibly tense backdrop to the matchmaking which is going on with the grandchildren. That was Deborah Cadbury. Queen Victoria's Matchmaking, The Royal Marriages That Shaped Europe, is out now in the UK, published by Bloomsbury. And in the US, it's due to be published in November by Public Affairs. Now, before we go... Here's a reminder that tickets for our History Weekends are still on sale. They take place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and then York from the 24th to 26th of November. For more details of the speakers and to purchase tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. OK, well that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Thursday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West, 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.